Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Amen. Amen. James, um, James is a member of this congregation. Um, rather than ask awkward questions, I'm just going to pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for James. And I just pray that each and every one of us listening would have open hearts. Amen. Thanks, Hello everyone, good to see you here. August has arrived, which means uh, one thing, it's silly season at church, so you can tell all the professionals have gone off on holiday and they've brought in the reserve team like myself <laughs> to do the talk, so bear with me, okay? Um, but hopefully we'll have some fun when the cat's away, the mice will play, that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, sorry to disappoint you, we're not, we're not just going to have fun, we're also going to do some proper serious thinking tonight. And we're going to start with one of the big questions. What are you really searching for in life? What is humanity searching for in life? We can think of some small things, air conditioning on the tube would be nice, uh, England to win the ashes, um, maybe to own property in London. Maybe a nice family house on the chase, for example, would be very nice. Um, Maybe you want hard Brexit. Maybe you want soft Brexit. Maybe you want no Brexit. Maybe you just want everyone to stop talking about Brexit. But what about on on a deeper level? What do people really strive for? What do we really want? Well, there are going to be lots of answers. We're all all complex people uh, with different desires. But let me suggest one thing that I think all of humanity, to some extent is searching for, is acceptance. Humans have a deep, deep desire to be accepted, to mean something, to have status, to be accepted within the country and the community and the friendship groups and the churches and the families and the households in which we live. Let me just give three examples to to show what I mean. First, um, a few months ago, I went to an exhibition at the British Museum about a guy called Asher Asher Banipal, something like that. Uh, I hadn't heard of him beforehand, but turns out he was quite a big deal. Um, Actually, back in 600 BC, so that's about the time of Jonah, for your history history buffs, um, Asher Banipal was the king of Assyria, um, and he was probably the most powerful man in the whole world at the time. Now, you might think that if you were the most powerful person in the whole world, You probably don't really care what people think. You can kind of do whatever you want. Um, Nobody's going to stop you. Uh, But recently, some archaeologists uh, discovered some of the writings that Asher Banipal had written on some stones, sort of the 600 BC equivalent of Twitter. Um, And uh, let's read it together. It's going to come up on the screen. 
I, Asher Banapau, understood the wisdom of the God of learning, all the art of writing of every kind. I made myself the master of them all. I read the cunning tablets of Sumer and the dark Akkadian language, which is difficult to rightly use. I took my pleasure in reading stones inscribed before the flood. I, Asher Banipal, king of the universe, on whom the gods have bestowed intelligence, who has acquired penetrating acumen for the most recondite details of scholarly erudition, open brackets, none of my predecessors having any comprehension of such matters, close brackets. I have placed these tablets for the future in the library at Nineveh to sustain the foundations of my royal name. Now let's jump forwards to 2016. Let's look at a more recent world leader who shall remain nameless, but who has written the following on Twitter. Actually, throughout my life, my two greatest assets have been mental stability and being, like, really smart. I went from very successful businessman to top TV star to president of the United States, open brackets, on my first try, close brackets. I think that would qualify as not smart, but genius and a very stable genius <laughs> at that. No guessing for who it is. Now, let's be completely honest. Reading those two things, do you think those two world leaders were completely confident, completely assured in who they are, in their worth and their status and their value? I don't think they were at all. It actually sounds like the complete opposite. Look, if you, if you know that you're really valued then you don't bother going around telling everyone how great you are. You know you are. You're confident of it. Instead, these people sound like people who are completely insecure about whether they're valued. Even though they have all the power and all the fame, underneath, there's that fear, that, that vulnerability. The fear that maybe they're not as good as people think. Second, a personal example, or actually not quite a personal example, um, this is an example from my wife, Lucy, because she had the better story of the two of us. Um, when Lucy was 11, she went to a, a summer music camp. Um, and at those sort of camps, it's lots of different people from lots of different schools and places. And at the start, no one really knows each other very well. And you probably remember what it's like at that age. Um, when there's a group of new people, you really, really want to fit in. And not long into um, this camp, Lucy was uh, invited to a sleepover with some of the cool girls, I hear. Um, and so she went along. And one of them, I think one of the horn players, uh, said, <laughs> not sure why that's necessary, um, said there was this new craze going around. You've got to try it. Apparently, all the cool girls were getting their eyebrows done. Now, Lucy was a bit perplexed. She didn't really know what this was going to mean. Um, but she did the honorable thing. And she said, you know what? I will be the guinea pig. I will get my eyebrows done. Um, and a couple of days later, and a few razor blades later, um, at the final concert, out Lucy walked in front of all her adoring, her adoring parents, um, her violin in her hand, and no eyebrows on her face at all. <laughs> Thankfully, they have grown back. Um, final example, an example from the Bible. Think back to the very beginning. In the beginning, the world was perfect. Humanity's relationship with God was perfect. And at the end of Genesis 2, it says Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. They didn't need to spin or to present themselves in a certain way. They knew God's approval. But then in Genesis 3, sin came. And just 10 verses after Adam and Eve were living naked and unashamed, just 10 verses later, Adam says to God, 
I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. In just 10 verses, they went from knowing God's complete approval to being terrified that actually they might not be approved. Three examples. Two world leaders, one schoolgirl, Adam and Eve. Completely different circumstances, but one common thread, a deep desire for acceptance, a deep desire to fit in, but alongside that, a desperate insecurity, a desperate fear that actually they might not be accepted if people really knew what they were like. So what do they all do? They, they put on a front. Some write about their amazing talents on um, pieces of stone or on Twitter. Some shave their eyebrows off. Others hide. They cover up their insecurities. That it's all driven by that, that same motive. Now, we might call that self-esteem. But I think the reality is that all of us are hungry for that praise, for that recognition, for someone external to affirm us. It's why we care so much about what people think of us when we're at school, at uni, at work, on dates, in marriages. It's why we spend hours and hours curating our social media, um, choosing the right filter, choosing the right caption, so we can get as many of those dopamine hits each time we get a like. Now, what's this all got to do with the passage? Well, look down at verse 9. I hope you've still got it open. And it says at the start that Jesus was talking to people who were confident of their own righteousness. Now, these days, when I say righteousness, I think most of us think of it pretty negatively. We tend to associate it with self-righteousness or pride or arrogance. But in the Hebrew language, righteousness actually meant something much, much richer than that. The word righteous in this passage is, is probably best translated as someone who is approved. It's that same thing. Someone who's accepted. Someone who, who passes scrutiny. Someone who's justified. And in this parable, Jesus shows us two possible approaches to getting that righteousness. Two ways to really be accepted. One is the Pharisee's way, and one's the tax collector's way. One way works, one way doesn't work. Let's go through them in turn. First, the Pharisee's option, um, the one that doesn't work. The Pharisee seeks his acceptance from the bottom up, by self-earning, by climbing his way up through his own efforts, ultimately by trying to be his own saviour. Let's look down at uh, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. I think this passage shows us three big problems with the Pharisee's approach, and we're going to go through them. The first problem is separatism. Separatism. Above all, that means separatism from God. This might sound quite weird. It's a prayer. Um, How is he being separate from God? Well, let's take a closer look at the Pharisee's prayer. Read it yourself and count how many times does the Pharisee mention God. Take a look. What's the answer? Just once. That's it. It's the first word. And then he only talks about himself. See, the Pharisee's not really praying to God. It's not really a prayer. It's a speech. 
Because if what you really care about is your, is your moral worth, your reputation, then God isn't really what you're interested in. Sure, he might be a way to get there, but ultimately he's an afterthought. He's, he's a means to an end. And so actually the, the Pharisee's prayer turns into self-worship. C.S. Lewis said, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and on people. And of course, if you're always looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So first, separatism from God, but also separatism from other people. If you look at the start of verse 11, it says the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Now, why did he stand by himself? Well, if your focus is on people thinking you're really good, on on impressing a certain group of people, then what's the temptation? It's always to distance yourself from the bad people. Make it clear that you're not like them. And that's exactly what the Pharisee's doing. He's distancing himself from others. He's distancing himself physically, but also relationally. He doesn't want anything to do with them. We probably all remember that sort of dynamic at school. There were always the cool kids, the in crowds, and people always wanted to be in them. And the temptation was always to focus on being friends with them and on ignoring people who were below you, who were less cool than you. Now, it's, it's so easy for us to look back at that and agree how unfortunate and unpleasant schools can be. But let's challenge ourselves for a minute. Let's be really honest. Sometimes, is church a bit like that school? Let's be honest. We, we come into church on a Sunday evening, and what do we do? We look for the people we want to talk to. We look for the cool people. We look for the popular people. And we ignore the strangers We ignore the newcomers. We ignore those slightly awkward people. Jesus commanded the church to be the most distinctive community the world has ever seen. And it was distinctive because it was inclusive, radically inclusive. People from every tongue, every tribe, every nation united through the blood of Christ. And how sad would it be? How hypocritical would it be? How shameful would it be if we twisted that church into the complete opposite, into a community of cliques and division? Complete opposite of what Jesus was like. But instead, you know what would be amazing? You know, if someone came in and they weren't a Christian, imagine if they came into this building and said, you know what, I I don't know about what you believe, I haven't really made my mind up yet, but, but your community, wow. You love each other so much. Never seen anything like it. Let's go for that. First issue, uh, separatism. The second problem that the Pharisee has, um, I'm calling cultural imperialism. And I think this is really interesting. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the um, moral behaviors that the Pharisee sets out in verses 11 and 12. and Just think about you know, whether he's in the right ballpark. So let's have a look on that list. First, he says he's not like the robbers. Now, I can confirm that robbery is wrong. You're not supposed to do it. So tick, the Pharisee's on the right track there. Secondly, doing evil. Yeah, the Bible tells us not to do evil. Good. Third, adultery. Yeah, the Bible tells us not to commit adultery. Uh, Final one, give a tenth of all I get. Yeah, the Bible says that we should do that. He's a good person, right? 
This isn't like the sort of negative caricature of Pharisees that we have, that they're all a bit like immoral and corrupt. Um, he's a good guy. He's honorable. He's respected. He's probably well-meaning. But I missed one out. What about the penultimate one? I fast twice a week. Anyone knows where that is in the Bible? Let me tell you. It's nowhere. Not in the Bible. Fast, yes. The Bible tells us to fast, but twice a week. That extra level of detail, he's completely made up. So what's he trying to do here? Well, the Pharisee is he's creating new rules to make him seem better than other people. He's adding to the Bible to make himself superior. Maybe you think, oh, that's not good, but you know, not relevant to me. I don't sort of add rules to the Bible. Um, I don't make up extra stuff like that. But again, let's challenge ourselves. Where do we take personal preference or cultural custom and actually make it equivalent to what the Bible says? Where do we take a neutral thing and we elevate it to give it more moral significance than it actually deserves? Let me give a few examples. Um, In some church services, people worship with a loud band. In some church services, people worship with an organ and a choir. In some church services, people worship in complete silence. In some church services, when the, when the Holy Spirit falls, the church gets really loud. In other church services, when the Holy Spirit falls, the church gets really quiet. Some churches and some Christians spend lots of time worshipping God through social outreach, through loving others. Some churches and Christians spend loads of time worshipping God through prayer and through reading the Bible. Others spend loads of time worshipping God through music. Now, don't get me wrong. All of these are critical. But what's the risk? The risk is we become so hungry for that acceptance, for that justification, that deep in our hearts we use those superficial differences to pass judgment, to make ourselves superior. We look at those other churches and those other Christians and we say, oh, they're being a bit superficial, aren't they? bit shallow, a bit irreverent, a bit unauthentic. Here's what this passage says. Whenever you draw a line like that, whenever you draw a moralistic line between who's good and who's bad, who's in and who's out, you will always find that Jesus is on the other side. It is the complete opposite of the gospel. Final approach with the Pharisee's problem, sorry, final issue with the Pharisee's approach is that he will fail. Even if you manage to avoid those two traps, the reality is that the approach just doesn't work. You just can't do it. You just can't be perfect. Look, I think all of us know that even if we judge our lives on the basis of the rules that we sort of internally set ourselves, we know that we have, we have failed to reach those. And if we can't even reach the standards that, that we set ourselves we will definitely fail to reach the standards that God sets. Look, as an example, the Pharisee says he hasn't committed adultery. Great. And then remember what Jesus says in Matthew. I tell you, anyone who just looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. The reality is that we're broken. We're nowhere near God in terms of righteousness. We just can't earn our salvation. It's a bit like trying to jump across a huge ravine that's miles and miles long 
and us being impressed by the fact that one person can jump one meter further than someone else. We try to earn our acceptance and our recognition from God through our own efforts. We will fail. And not only that, but it'll be a faith empty of joy. We will spend every hour of every day full of fear about whether we've done enough. And we'll be exhausted, tired out from that endless striving. So that's the first approach, the Pharisee's approach. Let's take a look now at the second approach, the tax collector. And to start, just how the Pharisee is, in some senses, broadly a good guy. Just for the record, this tax collector is a bad man. Tax collectors are not just like people from HMRC who do some civil service work every now and then. They, they were the traitors. They were the lowest of the low. They were the collaborators with the Roman regime, with the enemy. But that's not the point. See, Jesus says both the Pharisee and the tax collector are broken. Both of them are sinful. That's not the difference. But the difference is the tax collector knows he is. He realizes that he's broken. He realizes he can't be his own savior. And so what does he do? Well, his prayer isn't particularly exciting. It's nothing flashy. All it is is seven words. God have mercy on me. Sinner. No attempt to earn his acceptance. No striving. No putting on a front. Just a plea for help. And listen to what Jesus says next. It's the tax collector who went home justified before God. Now, we might have read this lots and lots, and we become numbed to it, but isn't that amazing? Isn't that radical, completely radical? It would have astonished the Pharisees who were listening at the time. No philosophy or religion comes anywhere close in terms of that message. The way to find acceptance and justification and salvation isn't by earning it. It's not by climbing up to God's standards. Instead, it's by trusting in a God who affirms us unconditionally. There's a film uh, in the 90s called Fisher King. And in the film, um, there are two main characters. There's a guy called Parry, and Parry goes on a date with a girl called Lydia. Now, Lydia's this very shy, uh, introverted young woman, and she's got really low self-esteem, and in part that's driven by um, lots of experiences in the past of dates and flings that she's had with men who have started well, and then the men have just left her for dead. They've moved on. And in the film, um, Parry and Lydia go on their date, and they have a good time, um, and they're just chatting on the street afterwards when Lydia says the following to Parry. You don't have to say nice things to me. It's a bit old-fashioned, considering what we're about to do. What are we about to do, says Parry to Lydia. You're walking me home, she says. I think you're a little attracted to me. You'll probably want to come upstairs for some coffee, and we'll probably have a drink and talk, get to know each other a little better, and then you'll sleep over. And in the morning, you'll be distant, and you won't be able to stay for breakfast, maybe just a cup of coffee. And then we'll exchange phone numbers and you'll leave and you'll never call. And I'll go to work and I'll feel so good for that first hour. 
and ever so slowly I'll turn into a piece of dirt. You know what? I should never have done this. It was, it was very nice to meet you. Good night. Lydia starts walking off. But this time, the, the man runs after. Harry runs after her, and, and, and he stops her, and he says this. I'm not coming up to your apartment, says Parry. That was never my intention. I don't just want one night. Look, I have a confession I've got to make to you. I'm in love with you. And not just from tonight. I've known you for a long time. I know you come out from work at noon every day and you fight your way out that door and then you get pushed back in and three seconds later you come back out again. I walk with you to lunch and I know that it's a good day if you stop and get that romance novel at the bookstore. I know that on Wednesdays you go to that dim sum parlour. And I know you hate your job and you don't have many friends. And I know sometimes you feel a little uncoordinated and you don't feel as wonderful as everyone else. And you think others don't feel as alone and as separate as you feel you are. And I love you. Lydia stops and just says, you're real. Now, now why does that get us so much? All her life, Lydia had deeply wanted to be loved, to be accepted, but she was also deeply afraid of somebody finding out what she was really like, uncoordinated, shy, lonely, a bit awkward. But now, she's fully known. Harry sees all of her, all the endearing bits and all the messy bits. And still, he loves her. It's the same with us. All our lives, we, we, we deeply want to be loved. We want to be accepted. But we fear that if people knew what we were really like, we'd be totally unlovable. So what do we do? We put on that show... We pretend, we filter out the bad stuff, and it's exhausting. But then Jesus comes in, and he knows you better than you even know yourself. And he created you with all your quirks, and all your gifts, and all your flaws. And, all those, and he knows all those horrible thoughts that you would hate if other people knew you'd had. And still, he loves you. No conditions, pure grace. And see, if that's, if that's really the case, if God really loves me unconditionally, doesn't that change everything? No need to put on a front. No need to hide or, or dress ourselves up or, or shave our eyebrows off. No need to strive and strive and strive. We're free. As I wrote this, I, I realized that I definitely need to preach this to myself as much as anyone else. Because um, let me be honest, I, I don't give these talks much, and I'm pretty nervous. Um, but if I was entirely honest, do you know what I really want from the outcome of this? Do you know what deep down I'd love? I want people to come up the, at the end and praise me. I, I want people to come up and say, Oh, James, that was amazing. Aren't you gifted? What good anecdotes you had. <laughs> stop it, stop it. Um, what a good grasp of the word. I, I want that affirmation deep down. And through this parable, Jesus is just saying to me, stop. Stop trying. Stop trying and trying and trying to earn your worth. 
You are loved unconditionally. You are free. Just as we finish, maybe you're wondering, how, how can God do this? How can he love us like this? Um, does he just overlook the dirty bits, overlook our shortcomings? Well, I don't think it's a coincidence that um, this parable takes place in the temple. Because as you might know, in the temple, there is that thick curtain. That thick curtain that had stood for years and years that separated on one side the insiders, the good people, the holy of holies. And on the other side were the outsiders, the dirty people, the bad people. But as we know, at the very moment that Jesus died on the cross, at that very moment, that thick curtain that had stood there for years was torn top to bottom, completely gone. That division between the haves and the have-nots was gone forever. See, the gospel is all about a God who had all the worth, all the value, all the affirmation since the dawn of time, and he gave it all up for you. He became the lowest of the low. He was a baby born into an animal's trough. He had no education, no money, no status. He was despised and mocked and rejected by the people that he himself created, by his enemies and his friends. And he was put to death in the most humiliating and excruciating way and was buried in a borrowed man's tomb. He gave up all his status so that you and me could have status, all his worth so that you and I could have worth, all his acceptance so that you and I could be accepted. And because of that, because of his cross, tonight, Jesus says, any one of us can walk through that door as a Pharisee and walk out as a tax collector. We can go home justified, just like that. I'm just going to finish by um, reading a really short prayer. It's going to come up on the screen. Um, it's nothing magical, but uh, it might be useful if you want to pray it, just to echo it in your heart. You can pray it if you've been a Christian for years and years, but you just feel exhausted by all that striving. Or even if you're completely new to the Christian faith, you're completely new to church, you can pray it as well. We're all in the same position. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know there are periods of life where I have broken your laws. Even in those times where I have kept your laws, it's often just been an attempt to justify myself without you, to get you off my back. I'm sorry. I am so hungry for approval. I repent of my sins and even of my good deeds, of the motivation that's been driving me all my life. And today, I throw myself on your mercy.